over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Well, we are thrilled on the podcast today to have Dr. Crawford Loritz. Crawford is the senior pastor of the Fellowship Bible Church in Roswell, Georgia. He is also a visiting professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He is a council member on the Gospel Coalition. He served on innumerable different boards, in particular the American Missionary Fellowship, Urban Evangelistic Mission, as well as an Associate Director of Campus Crusade for Christ, now known as CRU. He co-founded the Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas, Texas, with our friend Tony Evans. He is a frequent speaker for professional sports teams, including three Super Bowls and the NCAA Final Four Chapels. He's also spoken at conferences, churches, conventions, outreaches throughout Europe, Africa, Asia, Caribbean, you know, whenever speakers go to the Caribbean, they're really not doing ministry. They're just they're just lounging in the sun, drinking virgin pina coladas. Crawford has written many, many books and articles, including Leadership as an Identity, Lessons from a Life Coach, and For a Time We Cannot See. Crawford and Karen have four grown children. And how many grandkids do you have now, brother? We have 11. 11? Yeah. yeah you got to get to work and catch up with Rainy. <laughs> Uh, no, no, no. I, I, that, yeah, I'm done. I'm hoping that they're done. <laughs> what, Dennis and Barbara had another one recently. 20, yes. 29, 30. How many? They lost I, count. I don't know. It's still in the 20s, but it's climbing, man. So. <laughs> uh, that's probably where we got to know each other uh, best was during our time with Family yeah. Life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in those good old days when... Uh, I had hair, and your hair was probably darker. Hey, 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 now. <laughs> well, bald is beautiful, so go for it. Yeah, right? really. All right. <laughs> well, as you know, Crawford, uh, during this big book series, I'm teaching through one book of the Bible each week, which has been a huge task. I've learned mm. a lot. Mm. Um, it's been challenging. And one mm. of the things I've tried to ask and answer when I'm preparing a message like this is, okay, let's step back on it. Besides an outline and a timeline and a date and, you know, mm-hmm. some of the things we would typically say about a book of the Bible, I'm asking, you know, big questions. What does a person need to know? What would a reader take away? What is God telling us uniquely mm-hmm. in this book and those kinds of questions? And so for me, it's been a great study, and uh, you agreed to help us out on the Gospel of John arguably uh, the simplest language, but the most rich in theology of the four Gospels. So um, first of all, let's kind of jump in the first chapter. We've got this unique, it's not a genealogy in the sense of other Gospels, but it's a beautiful uh, passage about, you know, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What are some of your thoughts and insights on the opening of the Gospel of John? So first of all, let me just say this to you, Michael. I so appreciate and admire you for doing this. You know, 
giving people an overview of the Bible and a snapshot like that uh, whets the appetite. And uh, what an example. I'm just really concerned about the amount of biblical, um, uh, the lack of biblical literacy in many of our churches. And I'm just delighted that you are doing this. And one example to those of us who are preaching, we need to honor what God says and give people an overview of what he's all about. I absolutely, I mean, I love the Word of God. I love the Gospel of John. And one of the reasons why I love the Gospel of John is for what you said earlier. The language is clear and simple. You know, you don't guess what John is saying. Now, you might guess in terms of what some of these passages mean. We were talking about (laughs) one of them (laughs) offline. But John, from the very beginning, really states what this Gospel is about. This Gospel is about the identity of Jesus. Mm Mm-hmm. And he begins by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that's where he goes. And so throughout the book, he's even selective in terms of the the number of miracles that he talks about. Um, There are not a whole lot of miracles there, but all the miracles he talks about are authenticating the identity of Jesus as the everlasting living Son of God. And so that very first paragraph is really the identity thesis of the entire book. You know, it's interesting, Crawford, because uh, many commentators and Bible teachers have made the comparison and contrast between Genesis 1 and John 1. Mm -hmm. And you've got so many of these uh, same themes about the eternality of God, creation Mm -hmm. account, and the beginning was the Word. Of course, we have the beginning in Genesis Mm 1-1. The Word is what speaks in Genesis 1. It Mm -hmm. begins with God. Um, Give us a little bit of your insight on, of course, the Word and the world are two big issues, or themes rather, two big themes in the gospel. Um, How do we know he's talking about the Word in print and the Word Jesus? you give any thought to that? Well, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, I preached through the gospel, uh, and I never had that thought race across my mind. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we can edit that part out. <laughs> no, no. I think the context is everything, right? I think uh, the way you know who he's talking about is the context. Uh, he identifies himself. I mean, we're skipping ahead here, but, you know, the nine I am statements, for example, that are here in this rich gospel. Mm-hmm. You know, if you read around what the statement that you're wrestling with or confused with, you'll get a clue as to who he's talking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so context is key. For example, the whole uh, miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. You know, uh, Lazarus' sister says, well, I know that we're going to see him in the resurrection. He says, no, 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 you don't understand something. I am the resurrection and the life. So he attaches his identity to his ability to raise Lazarus from the dead. Mm -hmm. Again, context. Mm -hmm. So I think that's pretty much how I look at it when I go through the book. Back to chapter 1 for just a second. When the Word made flesh is explained in chapter 1, verse 14. Let me just read a few Mm -hmm. verses. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, which interesting word uniquely used about Jesus, full of grace and truth, John testified about him and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me is a higher rank than I. He existed before me for of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten 
who is from the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. I still remember Crawford in my first semester of Greek when we were translating the Gospel of John, my professor saying that word explained is exegeted, that he has exegeted him, meaning that when you look at Jesus Christ, he is the exegesis. He's the explanation of what God is like. I love that. I absolutely love that. I'm looking at the English Standard Version, and it translates that he has made him known, but even that doesn't capture the observation that you just made. It's not just making him known. It is the visible explanation and declaration for us to see, feel, and hear, and touch. I love it. And that plays into, you referred to the I am's, that plays mm-hmm. into the self-references, uh, self-declarations, I am. Mm-hmm. I did a study years ago, and I need to probably do it again, but of seven key I am's that are parallel to seven key miracles and seven key people. Hmm. With the exception of one, there's a little bit of a trouble there, but you might think of the blind man. And then in John eight 12, he'll go, I am what the light of the world. Yes. Yeah. So each of those I am's is linked to a person And the one you referenced, Lazarus coming back from the dead, I am the resurrection. I'm the Mm -hmm. one who solves this problem. Mm -hmm. So if John is explaining him in the gospel, uh, then we're getting a picture. What is this God like? Well, let me show you. He can create. He can turn water into wine. Mm -hmm. He can give a blind man sight. uh, You know, all the miracles. And again, well, we have 35 miracles recorded. I'm grabbing that number. Mm In the gospels, and there's very few, as you noted, I think seven are only recorded in the Gospel of John. What are some other observations you have about high level, about the Gospel, its arrangement, some of the Well, themes? I've always been drawn to the realization that a third of the book takes place in the last week of his life. Yeah. That's, uh, what is it, chapter 12 through 19. Mm. And uh, that is amazing. And I think, yeah, you know, obviously it's on purpose. John, once again, underscoring his identity and Jesus' mission. And, uh, you know, when I did this series at our church, I spent about um, about a year or so in the Gospel of John. We took some breaks, but um, I entitled this series, Believe, Believe, because I actually, <laughs> no pun intended, I actually <laughs> believe that what Jesus is, is doing in this, what John is doing in this Gospel, he's not just declaring Jesus' identity for us to nod our heads He's declaring his identity for us to submit and surrender to him, for us to place our faith to believe in him. And to me, that is the relational focus of the Gospel of John. And so when you get to that, you know, so it's no wonder that he spends uh, a third of the book talking about the last week because he focuses upon the driving point of his mission to die on the cross in our place and for our sin. And once again, offering and challenging us to place our faith in him and to believe. And we go back to that comment about the most simple language of the New Testament Greek, and yet the clearest purpose in John uh, 20, 30, uh, 31, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but here it is. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And we often talk about when you're studying a book, what's the purpose of the book? And I like the 
big A author and little A author? What's mm -hmm. the purpose mm -hmm. of God, the ultimate author, yes. and yet the personality and style of the person writing, penning the gospel? And this one's clear. I mean, there's no debate. It's no. so you might believe. That's right. And he begins with a statement of identity so that, you know, we understand that believing is not just intellectual assent or it's not anti-intellectual. And he just reveals who Jesus is throughout the book. So it's almost as if you come to the end of the book and uh, the elliptical question is, so why do you have a problem with believing in Jesus? You know, it's a declaration of who he is. You know, and it's striking uh, whether it was, you know, we can just go through some of the characters in the Gospel of John, uh, whether it's his mother uh, mm -hmm. needing more wine, whether it's Nicodemus, they're individual stories, which is another interesting part of John's record. He's talking about God. It's like we're watching a play between Jesus and a person. You know, we're seeing mm. an insight between God and Nicodemus, between God and his mother at the mm -hmm. wedding, uh, the Samaritan woman in John 4, one of the marvelous passages mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. he's talking to a woman. Um, and that, again, is a unique part of it when you think about the intimacy. You're going to know who this guy is? You're going to believe in him? Let's see how he deals with people individually. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, it struck me as I was uh, preaching through this book uh, a few years back, that the dual theme, you see this in the other Gospels, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as well, but, but especially here in the Gospel of John, you see this amazing picture, paradoxically, of his subordination and sacrifice. Hmm. Um, you know, it's really something because it begins in the prologue by declaring the living word, and you just quoted John uh, 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. And yet you see his willful subordination to the will of the Father and his ultimate sacrifice. Uh, you know, that's the reason why I love John 13 so much, mm. the washing of feet. The washing of feet, really, uh, it points to the servant nature of our Savior. And that picture that Paul paints in Philippians chapter 2 of him humbling himself and laying aside his privileges just for us. It's really compelling. A lot of ink spilt on the interaction with his mother and mm. uh, the water to wine in Cana. Do you have any insights on that when you studied it, when you taught it, about what's really going on here? Because we've got a number of different you know, aspects going on. Obviously, the mother from Luke, we know that she knows something about this guy. Uh, we mm -hmm. know, obviously, it's been a divine visitation from an angel that this one is going to be Messiah. You know, so she knows about him. We know nothing of his childhood, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet, <laughs> at this Cana wedding near Galilee, you know, she comes up and says, hey, we need some more wine, son. <laughs> it's, it's comical, but there's a lot going on in this interaction. Woman, what does that have to do with me? <laughs> yeah, I, I know, man. And I'm thinking, boy, if I'd have said that that way to my mother, I don't know. <laughs> you wouldn't have seen daylight for a while, no, right? <laughs> no, no. I'd need another miracle, brother. So. Maybe that's the real miracle, right? <laughs> yes. yes, absolutely. I don't know. You have to just read in between the lines. And one of the things, uh, Michael, and I'm not bailing on this, but one of the things that I think we need to come to grips with is that where there's mystery, embrace mystery. 
and uh, not be more definitive than the text permits you to be. That's good. Yep. And uh, I think sometimes with young folks who get exposed to the scriptures, you know, you feel like we've got to have answers for anything. Well, yeah, there are answers in the scriptures and you can look for them and search them and say it with confidence. But when there is not resolution, don't resolve something that God has not given us information to right, resolve. Right. Yeah. The passage isn't necessarily answering all of our questions. No. But no. we need to know what the passage is saying. Exactly. And that's where we need to be. And so all of that is a fancy way of saying that I'm not completely sure of what all went on. You know, evidently there was some indication from his mother of who he was prior to this occasion. Now that she got, and uh, she understood his ability. Now, whether she understood the timing of things is up for debate. You know, and I think Jesus' response to her may give us a little bit of a clue that he says that, uh, in so many words, no, you're not inaugurating and commissioning my ministry. Mm -hmm. God is. Mm -hmm. Now, again, the text doesn't say that. I hold that with an open hand. No, I got you. Uh, But that may have something to do with that in terms of his response. No, a shift is taking place here. And uh, you need to understand, although I honor you as my mother, I'm embarking on my public mission and ministry, and uh, God, my father, is a director of what I do, and he commissions the time and the place for when that happens. I lead tours in Israel, and I remember uh, one of my guides years ago who could have been a stand-up comedian. He was hysterical, Long Island, New York, Jewish guy who found his way home and uh, led tours, and he read this passage in almost a Yiddish kind of shtick. And uh, he read the part about, um, woman, what does it have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said, whatever he says to you, do it. And he did in a real thick Yiddish Jewish accent, kind of uh-huh. throwing his shoulders up. And he goes, every Jewish boy, when his mother said that, did what she said. <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting that there is some comedy in it because yes. at the end of the miracle, they're all blown away that this is extraordinary wine, not like what you typically serve when the guests have been eating and drinking and been there a while. Uh, you brought out the best for last. So it's, yeah. it's interesting. We could play with that a little bit, but I think maybe we shouldn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're no fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, what I do find fascinating here in this first miracle is that people often have trouble with you know, the resurrection or with Christ being who he says he is or uh, creation being literal or not. And I'll ask questions. Well, do you believe he turned water into wine? And they, well, yeah. I say, okay, he broke the laws of biology. He yes. broke the laws of time. Yes. And he broke the laws of chemistry, arguably. Mm-hmm. And in a manifestation of a command, he turned water into wine. So if he can do that, it seems to me he can handle other miracles, which will culminate, of course, in the one you referenced with uh, John 11, when he yeah, resurrects mm-hmm. uh, Lazarus, and then ultimately himself, of course. But if he has power over a simple element like water into a wine, uh, what stops him from creating eyes for a blind man or healing a person or touching right. and a fever going away? or more importantly, dealing with our sin. Absolutely. And just your descriptions there point back again to the thesis of the book, which is introduced in the first paragraph in chapter one. You know, these miracles are not a la carte. I think we need to be careful. I know sometimes we, some of us, we say, well, Jesus did these miracles, and so we can do these things too, and he'll do the same thing for us. Well, you know, 
you got to look at, as you said, the author's intent, big A and little a, right? The author's intent of these miracles, especially in the Gospel of John, was to point to who Jesus is and not just to be blown away by the miracle that he performed. He performed that miracle because he's the everlasting God. And uh, we believe in him because this is who he is. And I think that's the reason why, especially John, John does not give a whole lot of miracles. He uses the ones that, at least in his mind, for his purposes, serve as the greatest window into the identity of our Savior. Mm -hmm. One of the exercises I've done, and I suspect you have too, mentioning belief early on, uh, I underline the word believe and saved Mm -hmm. and delivered Mm -hmm. in red in my Mm -hmm. Bibles throughout every time I come across it. And I forget, I haven't done a count. I should, of the times the word believe, pastel, faith is recorded in John. Mm -hmm. But again, it goes back to that purpose statement. That's the whole point of it. So these miracles were not, um, you know, simply to show, you know, something spectacular, but so that you believe that he's God. And uh, one of my sayings is, uh, don't merely ask God for a miracle. Ask him for an immovable faith. Amen. Because the miracle, you're going to need another one. That's right. You know, if he heals you of cancer, well, it might come back in two years, and you're going to need another one. Why don't you ask him for an immovable faith to believe him? Yeah. I wish I had talked to you before I did the series this week. (laughs) (laughs) You know, mine is not as eloquent as yours. What I tell the people is this. Hey, look, don't worship the miracles, because the truth of the matter is 100% of the people that Jesus healed died. Yeah. My running joke is, is Lazarus got a raw deal. <laughs> yeah, he, <did laughs> he was on the way to heaven. And now oh, right. I got to come live again and die again. What a bummer. <laughs> and so the miracles change, but the one who can give the miracles. Doesn't. Yeah. See, that's, that'll preach. Yeah, come yeah, on now. That's yeah, pretty yeah, yeah. So, Okay. <laughs> let me ask you a question here. And this is, we're just, you know, hammering this out together in chapter 224. There are verses probably like you read some things that just they give me chills. Mm. But Jesus, 224, on mm. his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Yeah. And I just go, whoa. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. And somewhere in my cross-referencing, maybe it was a commentary, maybe my own reading, I came across 1 Kings 8.39. It's obscure. But this is a section where um, we're reading about Solomon's palace, the prayer of dedication, Solomon's Mm -hmm. praying, and he makes this comment. He says, uh, verse 39, here in heaven, your dwelling place, Forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for Mm. you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you have given to our fathers. And I remember connecting the dots on this who go, wait, 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 wait. wait." Mm -hmm. Solomon is praying to the God of the universe. Mm Mm-hmm and arguably to God the Father in that text, Jesus Christ in 2 John 24 is saying, John's telling us, he knows everybody. He knows all about you. That kind of gives me chills. Yeah, and it's such a clear statement of his omniscience. You know, I remember saying repeatedly as I went through this series at our church, you know, there are people who read the Gospels and make the, in my mind, excuse the directness here, make the ludicrous conclusion 
that Jesus never claimed to be God. I don't know how you can read John 2, 24 and 25 without saying, well, what did he just say? Right. right. And when you put that in the context of the book itself, repeatedly, uh, you know, he underscores the fact that he absolutely has the attributes of deity. Mm-hmm. And this is one of them. And this is a display of his omniscience. Well, I want to jump ahead to chapter yeah. four for a second, but I want to come back to three. My wife, uh, we were just with a group of women at uh, the Billy Graham Training Center at the Cove not long ago. These were gold mm-hmm. star wives. Boy, talk mm-hmm. about an order to be with these incredible women. But she taught on uh, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and she made the observation uh, that this was the clearest self-reference that Jesus ever gave anybody, and he gave it to a woman. So this is John four twenty-five. The woman said to him, mm-hmm. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to you. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> he said it. Absolutely, man. I mean, we parse this thing too finely sometimes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You just have to believe the straightforward language. He said, ma'am, you just identified me. Bingham. I'm him. Yep. <laughs> Let's go back to John 3, a story we all know perhaps too mm-hmm. well. Nicodemus at night, um, you taught through it. Any insights, anything in particular that you love about that exchange? Oh, you know, just the honesty of Nicodemus. I mean, and I know he comes at night and he's a little nervous. He doesn't want to out himself with the other religious leaders. And, you know, there's a penalty that he'd have to pay uh, for identifying with Jesus. And although he comes at night, you got to admit it took some courage for him to come at all. Yes. And so here you have this religious leader who is an honest seeker of the truth. And uh, he's trying to find out uh, what it really means to have a relationship with God, which in a secondary application is a wonderful thing for us to think about, too. You know, not every unbeliever is demonstrating hostility toward God. Now, I know theologically, if we're not believers, we are hostile toward God, but not everyone is demonstrating hostility toward God. The Spirit of God may be drawing them, and this is the case with Nicodemus. And Jesus, I love the fact that, you know, Jesus changes his strategy. To see Nicodemus in chapter 3 and then the woman at the well in chapter 4, you contrast his approach. It's pretty remarkable. Yes. It is just really remarkable. In chapter 3, you know, Jesus gets very bottom line with religious leaders who have a context for truth and who should know better. And so he just jumps to it and says, hey, uh, Nick, buddy, you have got to be born again. And uh, But he doesn't do that with the woman of the well. He brings her along, and then he reveals himself as they, you know, gradually get into the conversation. So I think the direct tone that's here. Now, to be direct does not mean that Jesus blasted him away. I think Jesus was direct with him because he wanted Nicodemus to understand that, you know, he's talking to the one who's the fulfillment of everything that Nicodemus studied and read about. And uh, you're coming to me. If you want straight answers, here it is. So he says, he who believes in me is not condemned, but he who believes not is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten of the Father. That's verse 18. So you have all this direct language soliciting him, almost, I would say, pleading with him, Nicodemus, you know truth. Here's the rest of the truth. Make the decision. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's one reason I think that hinge verse is so 
omnipotent in uh, 2, 24 and 25. He knows everything about people. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Here's the first one. Exhibit A, Nicodemus. He knows all about him. Exhibit B, woman at the well. He knows all about her. And on Absolutely. we go with the Samaritan. And the remarkable part, you know, uh, your friend and mine, uh, Howard Hendricks, would often say uh, the always deliberate, intentional Jesus. It wasn't like, hey, let's go by Samaria today. I think we should go down to the lake. You know, he always knew what he was about. Yes, and indeed. so he's cleansed the temple the Passover, which is quite a statement in chapter two. This is my father's house. You've turned it into a profit center. You're misusing what this place was about. The first guy is a Pharisee. And then we go to the other pole. We go to a woman who's a Samaritan. It's such an interesting bookend. Even in this first, we got the miracle. We've demonstrated who this Christ is. He has power over the elements, power over nature. Now we see him establish who he is in the temple complex. First guy is a Jewish rabbinic Pharisee. Next is a woman. Mm, mm, mm. And you know, as this thing unfolds, that's why I say it's simple language, but the theology and the structure are just marvelous. It's just beautiful yes, it how it explains, back to the early part, that he's the explanation of God. Yeah, yeah a beautiful place setting, beautiful, simple place setting for profound truth, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, just, uh, yeah. How many great. people you think came to Christ through John 3.16? I'm one of them. Oh, my goodness. My wife is the one, too. Yeah. She was a teenager, and uh, she went to this uh, Christian concert downtown Philadelphia. Uh, she was 14 years old, and uh, uh, an invitation was given, and she came forward, and uh, then the person, actually, no, before the invitation was given, the guy speaking quoted John three sixteen and said, put your name in there for God so loved Karen. Mm. And uh, God used that to bring her to the Savior. So, yeah, it's hard for me to think. Uh, I read that verse and sometimes I even tear up when I think yeah. about what God's done in my bride's life and all uh, the millions of people. There's another story. I spoke at a uh, the Association of Rescue Missions. I think it's called something else now. A few years back. The guy that sang before I spoke, he sang, but he was also head of one of these city rescue missions. And he wrote this song entitled, The Night John 316 Met Jack Daniels. Wow. Wow. He was an alcoholic, and this is a true story. He's in this hotel room and put his bottle of Jack Daniels down on the little nightstand next to him, and there was a Gideon Bible. Flipped through the Gideon Bible and read John 3.16 and gave his heart to Jesus and uh, poured out his Jack Daniels. Wow. That's amazing. Well, I was in a Catholic uh, CCD class, it was called, and that was a class for uh, kids who didn't go to parochial schools. Mm. We we called it punishment for kids that didn't go to parochial schools. (laughs) And uh, the first uh, day of class, a guy on a green chalkboard with white chalk, that's how long ago it was, Mm. wrote John 3.16, on the chalkboard, he handed out paperback copies of the Gospel of John. We read John chapter 3. Uh, perhaps I had been exposed to that story. Mm-hmm, I don't mm-hmm. remember it. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time, and we read that story. And uh, I was a long-haired, hippie, uh, licentious, drug-using teenager. And I was 15 years old. And mm. I sat there, wait, wait, wait. All you got to do is believe. Mm. What about all this other you know stuff that we have been taught? 
And I asked, I don't know if it was three or 10 questions, you know, memory fades, but I asked several follow-up questions. What about this? What about that? What about this? And he just kept saying, what does the verse say? Yes. Whoever believes in him Mm. shall not perish, but have eternal life. So again, the clarity of the gospel of John, uh, not about works, not about, you know, rewards, not about those kinds of things. It's about, do you believe John 436? He who believes in the son has mm, eternal mm, life mm, again and again uh, through the whole gospel. So it yeah. is very clear when it comes to salvation. Amen. 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 What a great text. What a great text. Well, let's go on. Uh, some of the miracles. Uh, let's talk about some of those. We've got the nobleman's son who's healed. Mm-hmm. We've got, uh, and that's the first um, miracle at a distance, right? If I remember yeah. correctly. Because yes. he sends the man, uh, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Uh-huh. The royal officer says, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, yeah. your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. Yes. And so we've got this ability for Christ to heal without being there. We've got the healing at Bethesda, mm-hmm. um, the pool, which uh, I'm sure you've been to Israel, right? Oh, yeah, a number of times, yeah. And we typically take folks to the five so-called porticos and stand yep. there. Uh, I love this guy. We get this long picture of this guy, 38 years. He's been lying by the pool. Mm-hmm. And uh, he doesn't seem like he'd be a real pleasant guy. He <laughs> 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 asked him the question, verse 6, do you wish to get well? And I yeah. love the answer, Crawford. The sick man said to him, sir, I have no man to put me in the water. And I tell people when I'm reading this in the Greek, it goes, wow, 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 wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I went, wait a minute. What was the answer to the question? Yes. <laughs> yes, right? <laughs> and then I think, how many times do we come to Christ? Mm. Do you want to get well? Wow, 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 wow. And I'm not talking about physical illnesses. I'm talking about just yeah, challenges right, right. in life. Yes. Yes. You know, and we don't understand who this Christ is. And this guy did not know who this Christ was. That's amazing. That's amazing. And Jesus tells him, get up, take up your bed and walk. (laughs) And you got to love John immediately. Yes. There's no walking out, pray the prayer. You got to have enough faith. Boom. (laughs) He gets up and he walks. Yeah. Yeah. He absolutely does. One of my favorite miracles that he mentions here, it's not just the miracle itself, but how Jesus had to correct people who were disingenuous because of the miracle. It's over in chapter six, you know, when he feeds uh, the feeding of the 5,000 and they gather the fragments up and this kind of thing. And then, you know, of course, Jesus uh, walks on the water and he gets to the other side. When he gets to the other side of the Sea of Tiberias, the folks are there and they want to make him king. Mm hmm. And again, this Jesus brings it back, brings it back to the reason why he came. And he says, I love it. In verse 26, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs. And the word sign should be, again, circled. I love the use of the word sign there. The sign points to something else. He said, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, you're treating me like some freak at a sideshow at a circus. Hip, hip, hooray, Jesus, do it again. Mm-hmm. Do it again. What else can you do for me? And he refuses to let them domesticate him. He says, no, I did this as a sign for you to get it, that I am 
I am the son of God. Mm -hmm. And so that's the reason why you need to believe. And once again, it gets back to what we observed earlier, right? That the limited amount of miracles, but they all have a specific same focus. It's an insight into his identity, which should elicit and solicit belief and faith. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I can see the crowds there saying that, you know, we, mm -hmm. want, we want another free meal. This is a good yeah. deal, you know, yeah. and uh, that's back to my comment about, you know, don't ask God merely for a miracle, ask him for an immovable faith. And he goes on in that section to explain to them, uh, this is the work of God that you believe Amen. in him who he has sent. And so they said to him, what do you do for a sign that we <laughs> might see and believe you? What work will you perform? That's you know, almost like a circus. It's, it's and exactly I right. love the picture. Our fathers had man in the wilderness. Yeah, yeah, wink, yeah, wink, yeah. wink. Keep a brother yeah, ground yeah. every day, yeah. bread of the heaven. <laughs> and this is where you know it's sort of a theological rope a dope. Jesus says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread out of heaven." Talk yeah. about the clear phrase. Who's bread out of heaven? But my Father. And then we jump down to thirty-five. I am the bread of life. And that's why I go back to the miracles coincided with the yeah. I am's and vice versa, yeah. because they want bread. They want food. They like the baskets with leftover yeah. crust. And he says, uh, no, I'm the bread you're looking for. I'm well, the see, one. I, I love the way Jesus bottom lines things. You know, it's like, just as you were describing, it's almost as if Jesus said, no, 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 no. You, this conversation is getting out of hand. Okay. Let's pull it back here. Uh, gentlemen, you ate manna from heaven. Okay. Now I am the bread of life. Deal with that. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it comes several times. I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. Several yeah, times yeah, he yeah, says yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he goes so far as to say, "He who believes has eternal life." Amen. I am the bread of life. Your fathers yeah. ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. <laughs> That's right. Verse fifty-one. <laughs> you know, I am yeah. the living bread that came down from heaven. <laughs> so you know, you kind of wonder. And again, I think we have a an unfortunate view of the first century people. These people weren't stupid. They, in some regards, probably knew the Old Testament better than we do. Oh, yeah. And so these stories were very familiar to them. Their theology was very good, I would argue, for most of them. And so when they're hearing these things, they got to be connecting the dots. Well, yeah. The other side of that, too, because they knew so much of Old Testament history and their background and what have you, the jaws had to drop because Jesus oh, yes. was saying some astonishing things. Yes, yes. You know, uh, before Moses was, I am. I am, boy, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, that one got him in trouble. Uh, oh, yeah, big let, time. Let's kind of wind down our time with mm. the, uh, as you well uh, observed, a good third or more of the book uh, focuses on the last few days of Christ's life. Mm -hmm. And if we go to chapter 13, of course, we have the mm. beginning of Passover. We have um, the foot washing experience, uh, the betrayal. Judas is now out of the scene. Mm -hmm. And then we come to chapters 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 with the high priestly mm. prayer. This section is so rich and yeah. so many levels. Um, give us some of your insights of some of the passages that you enjoyed, appreciated in that section. Well, you know, I said to our church, and I don't remember exactly where I read this, but I said to our church that um, there are two passages in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that every believer should major on and be thoroughly familiar with. One is the Sermon on the Mount. 
And the second one is this upper room discourse, John 13, 14, 15, and 16. And the reason for that is it's my observation or conviction that Jesus summarizes the essence of vibrant Christianity in the upper room discourse. It's the distilled essence. And I really believe he's summarizing everything that he taught these disciples in three and a half years in these chapters. And what stands out to me is that repeatedly he keeps coming back to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Mm. uh, the parakletos, uh, that you can't pull this stuff off. You cannot endure. You cannot be fruitful. You cannot flourish apart from the enabling power of the Spirit of God. And uh, he keeps coming back to dependence. And I would say that is a dominant theme throughout the Upper Room Discourse, even this whole vine and the vineyard and abiding in the vine and that whole section there, he's saying that you just can't make it apart from dependence. And that's the reason why even the portrait there in John 13, as he's describing, as he's washing the feet of these disciples. I know we talk about this, but think about it. Here is the Lord of history that created them, that created the water, takes off his outer garment and gets on his knees as a servant and washes the dirty, crusty feet of these disciples, and he even washes Judas's feet. Mm. And the whole portrait of servanthood and dependence and others' orientation is just a sweet thing, and it goes throughout that upper room discourse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I find it striking, and when I teach through these sections, I'm overly repetitive. Know the context, know the context, know mm-hmm. the context. He is mm-hmm. talking to his 11 closest friends on the planet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. is a very intimate, you get to watch something Yes. That we never have a record like this in literature. Mm-hmm. And it's all about the person and work of the Holy Spirit, the parakaleo. And it's an interesting phrase, one another like himself. Yes. And the other yes. part about this Holy Spirit emphasis is, you know, and I'm teaching a series right now on the Holy Spirit because I think it's such a unfortunately confusing and uh, unnecessarily so. about who this person is, but it was a benefit for Christ to go. I won't leave you as an orphan. Mm -hmm. I'm going to send you a helper, Mm -hmm. and uh, we'll avoid some of the the heavy, you know, hypostatic union questions and all the, you know, uh, hypostases and things like that when we talk about this. But you've got this person of the Trinity, not a ghost, not a Mm -hmm. sub-God, not an angel, but a person as a spirit, and he's telling them all about it. Don't be troubled. Don't be worried. I'm going to send you the person, and he, the spirit, is going to indwell you and teach you everything you need to know about me Mm. and everything that I taught you that you're going to forget. And that's why I say uniquely to the disciples, because they were the ones who would remember all that he said, not universal believers. Yeah. If that applied to all of us, we'd all know everything in the Bible, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So some of this is so rich. Um, mm-hmm. But I read this and I feel a huge inadequacy, Crawford. I feel mm. like I do not understand the personal mm. work of the Spirit as I should. Well, and therein lies, though, where we should be, right? I mean, if we understood it completely, then that would, in my way of thinking, he would cease to be God. I mean, he would mm. is somehow or another. But uh, that's the sweet place to be. It's the place of surrender. I mean, we know enough in terms of what God's communicated to us for us to have confidence in it. And at the same time, we don't know it all because then we would cease to depend on the one that we should be depending Mm -hmm. upon. Yeah. 
Well, land the gospel for us, Crawford. Give us a <laughs> give us a twenty-five to fifty word. Uh, oh. When Crawford when Crawford reads the Gospel of John, what are some things you cherish, you take away, you embrace? Well, I think you know overall is just God's amazing love for us through Jesus. You know, it's hard for me to read the Gospel of John without thinking of, uh, what is that, Romans 5, 8, for God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And all that he did, and I put this in the broader context of even Philippians chapter 2, of how he laid aside Mm -hmm. these great privileges to step into human history, to become one of us, to tabernacle with us. And uh, all because of God's incredible love for us. And all that takes place in the Gospel of John, every bit of that is a declaration, yes, of who Jesus is, but it's a motivation of God's amazing love summarized in John 3.16. So when I read the Gospel of John, we're compelled to believe based upon who Jesus is, but also based upon the motivation of our great God, which was love to send his only son uh, that we might be saved. Dr. Crawford Loritz, pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in Roswell, Georgia, and longtime brother and friend. Thanks for your insights. Thanks for helping us think through the gospel together and uh, (laughs) makes me want to go back and preach it again. Ecclesian Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates. Music